Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've got a special treat for the drummers and drum geeks and progressive rock fans out there. A conversation between Morgan Simpson of Black Midi and Bill Bruford of, as he says in this podcast, about 101 bands. Now, that number isn't really too far from reality. Over a 40-plus year career, Bruford played with some incredible names in the world of progressive music, most notably Yes and King Crimson, but also his own projects, including Earthworks. He's an astoundingly versatile and musical drummer, and we were delighted to hear that he still got his ear to the ground all these years later as a fan of the relatively young band, Black Midi. You can hear it in Morgan Simpson's voice that he's both pleased and excited to make Bruford's acquaintance as part of the podcast. And this is actually the first episode we've recorded in quite some time where the participants are in the same room with each other. Simpson pays Bruford the ultimate drummer compliment when he says that he can recognize his playing within a couple of seconds, and Bruford isn't shy about his love for Black Midi. He even compares them, rightfully, to King Crimson. Bruford himself actually retired from performing about 10 years ago while Black Midi is just getting started. The band released their second album, Cavalcade, in May, and it's a massively eclectic, fantastic collection. A little more focused than their first album, perhaps, but no less rangy and striking. They'll hit the road for a huge tour this fall, kicking off with a slot at Pitchfork Fest in Chicago. Check out a little bit of the song, John L., which gets mentioned in this chat. Three altars of old Sony boy, backed only by accordion. Three rows of pale brunettes protect him from the crowd. And a curtain is a patchwork of imitation vermilion. And a red bar hangs over the throne that has been found. This is a scene on Main Street when John 50 comes to town. Bruford and Simpson have a lot of fun, as you'll hear, talking about other drummers like Phil Collins, Billy Cobham, as well as the similarities in their own playing. If you've never realized that a snare drum could sound like you're, quote, being slapped around the head with a wet kipper, then this conversation is for you. Enjoy. Well, hello, everybody who may be listening to us. Maybe there's nobody out there. On a Talkhouse podcast that we're doing, I'm sitting here in my music room. I'm Bill Bruford, by the way, ex-drummer of 101 different bands. Uh, and my, my my friend on the opposite side, who I've met about 30 seconds ago, is Morgan from the upcoming band Black Midi. And I've been itching, looking forward to this day a lot so I can grill him. And this, <laughs> this, is, this is an unusual occasion in a way because, you know, as I understand it, Talkhouse... Um, is is often about songwriters and, and lookout guys because we're drummers. So that's another whole thing right there. Hey, hey. More, more importantly, or more interestingly, perhaps, we've not met before, which again is un- unusual, I think, for talk house things. And finally, this bit of an age gap. You know, I'm this <laughs> crusty we, uh, old guy, you know, who's 172 years old. Um, and, and over there is handsome and very young <laughs> and depressingly young Morgan. Oh, you're too uh, so, kind. so actually, we, we have similar experiences, but we have half a century separating those experiences. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting mm. and crazy, in fact. Yeah. But also beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I, and I, I love speaking to guys of, who are coming up. I've done a lot of kind of lecturing and mm. chatting and writing books and stuff, trying to 
communicate the love of drumming and, and the value and the wonderful stuff about drumming to younger people. Mm, I know. it's <laughs> Drumming is such a... Uh, we're very fortunate to be able to do it. And as I said about a minute ago, you're definitely a hero of mine. Well... Just to make that very, very clear. I I feel very privileged and lucky to be here don't don't feel like that at all we can soon ruin that feeling <laughs> don't worry we've only just started <laughs> we've only just begun <laughs> i don't know how you want to play this but you know there's a couple of things i thought we could do which is i'm fascinated to hear a bit about black midi's music creation process be that rehearsal rooms and and um you know making records and stuff and also about morgan's music creation process <laughs> and how you came to be the kind of drummer and musician you are I think the only thing we might avoid, perhaps, is a, is a track-by-track breakdown of the new album, yeah. Cavalcade, which I've been listening to. I'm very well prepared. <laughs> we are, right? <laughs> I've been working all last night on this stuff, and it's great. I really enjoyed the new oh, album. Thank it's you. terrific, which I think is coming out imminently in a couple of days' time, maybe. Literally in a couple of days. May 28th. Yeah. But uh, where to start? Well, I thought, who's John L.? Is always the first question <laughs> I guess you get. Tell us who John L is. Well, John L is he so Geordie yeah. singer, lead yeah. singer, guitarist, um, had written the lyrics. So, you know, I don't want to speak for him in oh, terms of what he might mean. Do you know what I mean? He's, but, not, he's not listening. <laughs> well, he might be. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I think to me, John L is a sort of like big figure who um, people sort of worship. You know, you might be able to interpret that however you want. Okay. But to me, it's this sort of omnipresent figure that is the leader of... The leader, let's leave it at that. Or a leader of the world, you know? Um, So, yeah, it's a... A lot of people ask that question because oh, it, right, it does right. cause... I mean, I think it's a great title and it doesn't mean anything specific. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the best things really have multiple meanings. Indeed, they're much um, more fun, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's what John L is to me. And I love the idea of cavalcade, which is such a nice word too, in this kind of um, cavalcade or procession of kind of weird characters, mythical, semi-mythological, Yeah. that uh, the Geordie has dreamt up. Are you? Are you involved in this in the lyric side of the band no um the day i sing a song i will be because the way we work is that whoever has an idea to sing on a song once we have the foundations of the music whoever is the person to be like oh i I have some lyric ideas is normally the person who ends up singing that song Mm -hmm. so i see until i sing a song which I'm sure we'll be in the near future. And you would sing the words that you had written for that song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No one, no one would write lyrics for <clears throat> another person. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess <clears throat> there's not a specific reason for that. I think that's just been the way we've worked up until now. Is that, you know, yeah, the, the lyrics should come from the individual who's singing because maybe in the, in the future we'll write lyrics for the, each the, other. There's the classic old question always asked out around this time of these things is which comes first, the, ah. the, the music or the words? To which some of the old guys would say the check. <laughs> <laughs> the money. Oh, the gin and, t- the gin and tonic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Jameson. Yeah. Um, 
or music. It, it turns a music first. It feels like an instrumental band, a bit like King Crimson. Yeah. It's essentially instrumental. That yeah. something would happen, but then somebody would say, I really want to sing on top of this. Yeah, exactly. Which is a nice way around you yeah. know, to work things. It feels it feels very natural <clears throat> that way. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's that's the way we like to, to work. I mean, for when you were in King Crimson, was it also a case of lyrics being written by the, the singer or...? In, in Indeed, it was mostly. Actually, right at the beginning, they had a guy called Pete Sinfield who wrote the words. Right. He wasn't even in the band mm. for for uh, the lead singer. And that was the Smash album. So funnily enough, the words were written for a lead singer. And that continued on a bit with uh, words being written for the bass player John Wetton when I was in the band in the 70s by an outside guy who wasn't in the group but knew who was going to. And they were, they were good friends. And what was the thinking behind that? <laughs> Somebody else can write the words because <laughs> it's hard work. Yeah. But then towards the towards the middle of my time with with the band there was a guy called Adrian Blue, sure. singing and frontman and guitar, mm. and effectively songwriter. And he was terrific. But we would a little like Black Midi, we would start with a kind of instrumental fabric of some sort or some direction we wanted it to go in. And uh, Adrian would say. You know, I think this is a, I think this is about a Studebaker car or something. You know, and he'd then write a, a a song from the position or point of view of a Studebaker car, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And and but it was a lot of work for him. And it, we reached crisis level on the last day of the album. You know. Wow. We got a lot of tracks down, but we don't have any words. Oh wow! You know, and Adrian would have to really sweat it out. What album is this? Well, I'm thinking in the mid '80s now. Mm. An album called Discipline. Oh yeah. Beat three of a perfect pair. Big red, blue, and yellow colours, yeah. respectively. So, uh, yeah, it was hard work for him, really hard, and, and I take my hat off to him. You know, a songwriter in a corner is not mm. a person you want to know. It's, you yeah. know, it's, it's rough because you, you're up against a clock, time yeah. clock. Maybe you don't have that. Did you, when you work, are you very much watching the clock? Me individually? Or the... Well, the band, thinking this is costing. I think that's the one... I mean, as I was saying to you before, like we have very many privileges being in the band that we're in. But I think one of them is that we've never really felt any time constraints. We've never yeah. had... That's unusual. Yeah. In commercial studios? Uh, well, that's the thing. We don't normally tend to work in like super grand... Um, right. Well, I guess if you're, if you're talking about <clears throat> like when we actually record the albums, the first album was recorded... Um, with Dan Carey, who's got a studio in his house. Yeah. Um, not too dissimilar from this, kind of like you, you walk through and yeah. you turn right and, the, you know, he's got a, like an amazing setup. Yeah. Um, and where we did the, where we did Cavalcade was in Dublin and a really beautiful studio called Hellfire Studio. How long did that take? The, the to record. Yeah. So we were out in Dublin for maybe five or six days and that was to get, all instrumentation down. Wow, um, that's fast. I think. Yeah, yeah. We, well, that's the thing. Once we're, once we're in the groove, we work really quickly. Um, that's I think great. we. Yeah, we got there on a Sunday evening, I believe, and on the Monday, we had maybe six or seven live takes of. But you've been playing this. You've been playing the song for a little while before, or not? Yeah. Well, some of them. So, like, <coughs> the album is sort of written was written towards the back end of Schlagenheim so sort of like yeah the newer material that was coming yeah, out yeah. of jams and 
gigs and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so those tunes, those tunes being John L, uh, Condro, Malaysia, Patella, Slow. I can't even say that. <laughs> but you said it so well. <laughs> I hope I uh, got the pronunciation <laughs> right. Uh, I think I did. Um, those songs and is there another? So one? they were under the fingers. People yeah, knew where yeah. the fingers we, we, were going. Yeah, we we played them at gigs and we played them at a UK tour that we did last February, yeah. just before Mayhem. And you, um, so you were able to play the song all the way through and get a good take of it. Yeah, definitely. Do you realize how old fashioned that is? It's <laughs> delightfully old fashioned. Really? Yeah, and you played them all at once. Yeah, yeah, live. Live with a, no click tracks. No click. Do you realize how? Ancient this is. <laughs> we're old, we're it's, old men. It, it's really nice to hear. I mean, and it sounds like that, of course. Sure. It sounds sure. like that. And, and I, I love that. It's partly why I like the sound of the band. It doesn't come, you know, fresh frozen out of a freezer of algorithms. Honestly. <laughs> downloaded tracks. And yeah, stuff, yeah. You know, yeah. which is not, not my favourite kind of music. I'm, I'm more of a red-bloodied guy. I like to see other people's, look them in the eye and count one, two, three, four, let's play, you know. And I'm, I'm happier with that. Exactly, because that's how music began. Like, uh, that's how music... It has been done for many years, exactly. quite effectively. <laughs> yeah, it's worked. So why yeah. change it and well, mess think, with that? I you think know? it got expensive to do, and a lot of people thought, well, I can do this and sitting at home on my laptop and send the files around the world, and the bass player will stick something on, and the guitarist sure. will stick something on, and they won't know what each guy is sticking on anyway. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, eventually an album will appear. Yeah, yeah. But for a while, for a few years, I thought it all got a bit stiff. Mm, you know, so that's really I'm, interesting. I'm, and and your music making process, therefore, is a whole lot like King Crimson's was. Mm. Very similar. Although I came in from a drummer's point of view, I came in at the beginning of automation. Yeah. So suddenly there was a thing called a drum machine, and everybody thought that was great. Yeah. Wow, because now the drummer will play in time. <laughs> great. <laughs> And so that worked all right for a bit. And then a computer came in and suddenly started, people could start to move bass drums about and take the snare drum and turn it into another snare drum. Yeah. And pretty soon all hell broke loose and the, yeah. and the uh, album budget went through the roof because we were forever selecting a better hi-hat sample yeah, yeah, yeah. or something dumb like that. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So you're, you're doing it really the best way is, is to learn where your fingers go, to practice it enough, play it on some people, try it out, road test it exactly come in and play it yeah because that's mm. how wow what a sensible band you are <laughs> to, yeah that's probably one of the few ways that we're <laughs> we're sensible in what we do <laughs> but i would like to um track back a little bit so we've started at Crim sure. crimson because i was saying before that's sort of my reference point for you um the Lark's tongue album specifically um and i didn't actually realize that you played on like all those Yes records as well. So until... Yeah, yeah. Four or five before King Crimson. Yeah, yeah. Correct. So um, I'd just like to track back and ask what was the coming about of being in Yes? Well, that was really my first band mm. ever, really. And we were wow. very young, 18, 19. Maybe the oldest guy was 21 or 22, something like that. Um that's crazy. And also from very different parts of the world, well, different parts of the UK, you know. So the guy, the leader of the band, John Anderson, was from Accrington, mm. up north. And I'm, I'm very much a southern guy. I could barely understand what he was talking about. <laughs> Bill, could you just play like a yeah. backbeat? Uh, oh. <laughs> what are you saying? 
Um, and, and a very wide range of musical expertise too. Mm. So we had a Royal Academy keyboard player, Rick Wakeman, who was terrific. And he could do all kinds of clever harmonic stuff which would, would l- l- get you from A to B. Sure. So you have two really ill-fitting parts, A and B, or A and C, and you'd say, Rick, I want to play this and I want to play that, but they don't go very well together. He said, leave it with me. And he'd just find you a little harmonic thing wow. and it would change key and modulate. And before you knew it, you were in the sunny uplands of section C, just where you wanted to be. Wow. And how would that how would that come about? Would he go away in his own no, time? No, no, this is all horrible sitting around in rehearsal rooms. Okay. Come on, Rick, you know, <laughs> sort it out. Uh, so it was, um, it was done like that. And when I was... Uh, young, my first record was at Polydor Records, and I didn't. I, they gave me a pair of headphones to listen to, and I didn't realize that you could uh, th- that you could have the instruments could go up and down in the in the headphones. Wow. I didn't really realize that until towards the end of the album. So for most of the very first album I made, I had a screaming guitar player <laughs> in one ear and the reverb of a vocal. <laughs> <laughs> in the other ear and and almost nothing in between and it was pretty horrible wow. until somebody said you know so we didn't know what a record i didn't know what a recording studio was wow. i just went straight into one That's so so interesting we, and how and how did you meet the guys i answered an advertisement in the newspaper of the day called the melody maker maybe i put an ad in the melody maker i think uh and said you know Great drummer, brilliant drummer. <laughs> best drummer work. around. Best drummer in town <laughs> once work. And and damn me if John Anderson and Chris Squire, who would just got together that day, didn't kind of call me and say, we've got a gig this evening, let's go and play that. Wow. And we played In the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett. Wow. For, for about 20 minutes because it was about the only song we knew. Wow. Whereabouts was that? Rachel McMillan's College, Deptford. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't said those three words for a long time. <laughs> so that's where it was. Wow. And it was very scrappy. And it was, I think the, a huge difference is that everybody's very professional these days. You know, your manager, you, Max, even Max over there, he's very professional. Max is doing the sound. Thanks. Shout Max. out, Max. Max is very professional. Everybody's very professional. They know what they're doing. In my day, we were inventing the entire music business. Sure. You know, right after the Second World War, there was just a few records and dance bands and things and a bit of skiffle music. But then came rock and roll and past the Beatles and up to and including the Beatles, nobody knew what they were doing. They didn't know what a stadium gig was. Nobody had done one of those. Um, nobody really knew what a record deal was. Nobody, mm. Everybody was making it up. My first record deal was about four pages long, you know, and I don't think I read it anyway. And I was too young to sign it. <laughs> so you know, I mean, everything was, was illegal. everything was illegal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, nobody knew anything about publishing or songwriting. So we learned the hard way, and often very messy way. Mm, mm. That's so interesting. Because mm. I feel like there's such a beauty in. I feel like the fact that people were making it as they went along really informed the music because they really did. It really did. Um, also, we decided we wanted to write really long pieces. So uh, unlike Black Midi, we weren't necessarily able to play the entire tune all the way through from beginning to end because it hadn't been written. Right. So we'd write in the studio. So we'd have a great 24-bar passage, which we all thought was great, and then we'd <laughs> down tools 
Okay, what happens next in this story? Right. You know, and then somebody would write, join together by Rick Waitman. <laughs> somebody would write another 24 bars and off we'd go and play that. In Actually in the studio? Yeah, right? yeah. Wow. Having edited, and then we'd edit it together. Everything was tape splicing. Wow. Two-inch tape, that that thick, and you carefully, mm. you have to do it carefully, uh, and you'd edit things together. And then uh, you go and play, you'd, you'd break down the equipment, go and play a gig in Scunthorpe, <laughs> come back, set the drums back up again, hope you've got the same sound or something similar, and do section four, you know. And wow. eventually, at the end of the whole thing, you'd be able to, you'd say, oh, that's what the song is. Now we can play it all the way through. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? So interesting. So when you when you played the master tape back, it would go around like this, and every time I click my fingers, would be another edit. Everything was done by tape editing. Wow. Very slow, very slow and laborious. But rewarding. It sounds like at the it same was. Time. It was very rewarding. Mm. Yeah, and at the end, you'd go, "This is great. This is unfurling fabulously." You know. And we had a great engineer, so our engineer was very important. Is is an engineer so important to you these days? Yeah, I think I think it is. I think it's important. Drum sounds, to, of course. Yeah, exactly. And that makes me go back to say that I love. I think what I love about you so much and your playing is that I know I know when it's you. I think the best <laughs> players, you know, within two seconds who it is. Oh, yeah. And I think talking about drum sounds specifically, your snare sound iconic in my opinion yeah it like i did i did seem to hit him in a different way and i was unusual of the day because it was all very ringy yes you know it's all kind of open and uh in those days uh, a lot of guys wanted a very dead wet sound a bit like being slapped around the head with a wet kipper yeah 70s right <laughs> 70s yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so i didn't really like that very much so i did this more open thing but actually and i used many different snare drums and I never spent more than 30 seconds tuning up a snare drum. Right. So it wasn't the drum itself, it's the way you hit it, 100%. as you probably know, um, as you obviously know. And uh, why am I saying this? Because I wanted to say that I don't think it's necessarily so much, it is partly the sound, but it's also where I placed the beat. Yes. It's, it's, uh, there weren't many guys who wanted to place it. I wasn't doing backbeats. Sure. You really weren't. Let's, let's put it like that. <laughs> you definitely <laughs> were not. You Although were I love backbeats. Nothing wrong with backbeats, but I was just trying to stand out, just trying to find my own little patch. You For know. sure. Everybody else is playing backbeats. I've got to find something else. And I think that's something that I take direct inspiration from you about, is that when I'm thinking about drum parts, it's not it's not to say that I think, oh, what would Bill Bruford do in this, this situation? But I feel like backbeats are the cornerstones of modern modern day drum beats right yeah um and i really try and consciously to to veer away from that and i think now i'm naturally at the point where i don't instantly go and play a backbeat because yeah it's not natural to me anymore unless it's what the music calls for but i think in a band setting i really interesting i really try <clears throat> and take inspiration from people like you and um, yeah. also I think, separate note, but I think Phil Collins is a criminally underrated drummer. Like, 
I think he's... Yeah, terrific drummer. Oh, incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very, very natural guy. Yeah. I know you you mentioned Billy Cobham once. He could do you a fantastic Billy Cobham impersonation. He's a ter terrific mimic, Phil Collins. Mm. If, he used to have a great line in doing in doing a sea line, kind of like, I can't... You know, he'd sort of flap his... He'd, he'd flap his hands like that. No and, and, way. And he, and he was... He could mimic... So he was a great actor. He could mimic anybody. He could mimic Phil, uh, Phil Collins. He could mimic Billy Cobham on the drums. Added to that, you know, he could sing in an odd metre. Mm. Or, or he played an odd metre and sing in four, you know. And some of his early stuff is really, really terrific. Yeah. And a great natural rhythmist. yeah. Yeah. Incredible, incredible mm. musician. Yeah. I played um, with him briefly in Genesis for just about... Well, yeah. I was just gonna, about a year we, yeah. did, we did together. So I got to know him pretty well. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. Um, so you did. You played on a couple of live... Albums, I, we right? did a tour for, for <clears throat> six or nine months, excuse cool. me. And um, yeah, inevitably there was some live recordings. But again, bear in mind that to make a live recording was a massive affair. You needed yeah. trucks and searchlights and crews of people and you know it's very expensive to make a live recording mm. which is why we guys had very few live recordings yeah now of course everything is recorded and beautifully so and everybody has everything but for us to to make a record was an expensive complicated thing so you never had any excess material in the sure. studio very few rough takes you know but i think that's so yeah. That's something that is a bit lost nowadays. I think the fact that it was a lot of admin to record a live show, you know, pre-80s. Yeah. Meant that, like you were saying, there's no excess. And it means that... No fat. Yeah. yeah. When, when I, th I feel like when a musician has that in mind, you have to execute. You do. You know, you can't rely on, oh, yeah, we can record it again and again and again. Yeah. It's like... You know, that's why I think the best musicians came from the 50s to the, like, 80s. That sort of period yeah. is when you had to you had to perform. You couldn't rely... Of course, technology technology is a big factor as to yeah, why yeah. You, you would be able to redo things. But yeah. I think, you know, when I hear live recordings now, a lot of them are, like, Spotify sessions and YouTube sessions. And it's yeah, like, yeah. there's no... You know, to was, me, the idea of doing a live recording is to sort of maximise the beauty of music being played in, pr in front of people. Yeah. Not someone with their acoustic guitar sitting in an office in London Bridge <laughs> in, in YouTube's, like, head office. Like, that's, to me, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not appealing yeah. at all. And there was always Pro Tools, of course, you know. Yes, so exactly. All that double bass drumming from <laughs> all that stuff is gridded out on yeah, Pro Tools. Exactly. Which folks who are listening is a kind of music software program which can make you sound great. <laughs> the best ever. Yeah. And get rid of all your mistakes. You see, I like mistakes. Me I, too. I'm perfectly okay with mistakes. Me too. I you love mistakes. Know, did you know Tony Williams? Did you ever get to hear oh. Tony Williams' stuff? I love, I love it. I mean, Tony Williams was one huge mistake from the beginning to the end, exactly. and it was the most exciting thing in the end in the world. Exactly. He'd reach for things, figures on the drums, and click sticks all the time. The sticks would hit each other all That's the time. That's what I love about Billy Cobham as well. You but hear it, his click sticks. Yeah, yeah. All but the it's time. all right. We've got Pro Tools. 
We can edit out the mistakes. No. Don't edit out the mistakes. That's no. what it is. That's what makes it, mm. right? It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's so funny. Even talking about Tony, um, I was watching a video of him in Miles's second quintet. So him, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wayne Shorter. Um, and they were playing Agitation, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, amazing tune. But mm. it's this gig in France somewhere, I think. It's on Herbie Hancock's YouTube. And they all kind of walk out on the stage that all being introduced, which I think is also a really cool thing that doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah, get that back in your band. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, on drums. Yeah, yeah. we have so-and-so. Absolutely. Like, I think mm. that's really, mm. really epic. But they were walking on, and they, of course they all look cool as fuck. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Suited and booted. And Miles Tony's on. looking about 16, 17 years old. Well, he was, I think he was, <laughs> what, 67, so he would have been... 23, 22? Oh, really? Maybe. That kind of age, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Very young. Incredibly young. And they all walk on, Miles comes on last, literally plays like one line, and they're all in straight yeah. away. Like, yeah. they're all at the point that you'd normally reach in a gig, maybe like an hour in. Yeah. And they're just, they're just there, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah. but there's so many mistakes as well. Like, Ron's still tuning up, like in the first tune, because he did, literally did not have time to do all of that. And I think... Yeah. Those are the beautiful yeah. things that really There's something make about music, music breathing too. So I sort of resent, I don't resent. I mean, I had to work with the arrival of the computer. Sure. And, and oscilloscope time, you know, where it's got to be perfect. Yeah. And, and we'd get stopped in the mid 80s. You'd get stopped after playing about two bass drum notes and somebody would say, oh, drums, click, you know, over the intercom drums. We've got a problem and, and you know, the second bass drum note is 16 milliseconds late, you know, and you go, we haven't played any music yet, you know. Wow. And, and, and you'd, you'd get stopped all the time. So who would say that? The producer? Well, the producer. Yeah, the producer doing sessions and or in some band stuff for the guys who got very keen on computing. And so it made miser absolutely misery for the drummer, you know, oh, because after a while you couldn't play anything because you were pretty sure it would be three milliseconds late. But he's, he's reading it off some graph somewhere, you know. So it was pretty rough for guys like me who grew up with what we might call orchestral time mm. where we thought... You know, I was the conductor with a pair of sticks, and if I thought the music needed to go forward a bit, then I would make it go forward a bit. 100%. And if it needed to slow up or cut back on the beat a bit, I would do that. And that breathing, as we thought it was, got kind of ironed out with the new machines. Mm, so mm. I, that was one of the big navigations that I had to go through in my career. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. But I got much better. My timing got much better as a result. <laughs> to say that. Bill can actually play in time. <laughs> That's Hooray. great. All right, at last. <laughs> hey, TalkHouse listeners. We want to tell you about Sound Opinions, a podcast that brings you explorations of the latest in the music scene and historical perspectives on the current trends in music. Each week, join Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott as they dissect new albums and revisit some of the classics. They also interview artists from every background and genre you can think of, and share some of their under-the-radar favorites. These guys have spent over 20 years hosting this show, and it has been incredibly fun to listen to how they're continuously keeping themselves in learning mode as music continues to evolve. And they also strongly believe that everyone should let out their inner music critic so their community is a valuable place to connect with other music lovers. Check out Sound Opinions today on your favorite podcast app. There are lots of similarities in the way both King Crimson and Black Midi have made music, but it's funny that there's been a 50-year gap between us 
And in the 50-year gap has been a lot of stuff I don't think either of us particularly liked. <laughs> mm, mm. Whereas you're, you're doing something very similar to King Crimson in its music-making process, and we like Black, Black Midi very similar. But um, there's this vast gap where people, the computer has come, and it's kind of going a little bit. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely agree. I mean, you can kind of hear it in sort of the pop charts in the past couple of years, like 70s-esque sounds have yeah. started to come back. Yeah, uh-huh. The 80s is, has, has come back as well. Right, right. Whatever that even right, means right. in terms of things coming back. But I think people are just growing a bit tired of yes. screens because now yeah. it's not as if like we also have phones and tablets and laptops that are the most yeah, yeah. incredible fast working things ever mm. and I think now when it comes to making music it's like I. it seems you, as if people do you play another instrument second instrument uh, so I dabble a little bit on bass bass guitar mm -hmm. because my, my dad um, is a bass player first but also teaches guitar really um, yeah so, that's, so you're a working musician yeah yeah yeah, yeah oh yeah. great so he teaches full time, but he also gigs. And oh, well. And my mum sings. Um, that oh, was oh lovely. You're from a musical family. Yeah. yeah oh, that helps. Yeah, yeah. It really helped a lot, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, you know, he'd have basses around and I'd pick them up every so often. Yeah. And I'm trying to teach myself some uh, piano. Some piano. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great instrument, piano, for drummers because the, the notes are right there. Mm. You can see what note is. It's a great instrument for anybody. Yeah. And it's very it's a percussive instrument too, yeah. or percussion instrument in exactly. a way. Exactly. Um, so I that was always my second instrument. I was just new enough to play slowish. Yeah. You know, but some, I got around with some harmony and stuff. And mm. so I was able to write some albums in the 70s and... Yeah, with your own band. With my own Rufford, bands, right. yeah. Eventually I got to my own bands. So, yeah. you know, an obvious question for you is where would you see yourself in, you know, 10 years' time? You know, with, with mega platinum, of course, <laughs> you know, <laughs> black MIDI albums uh, on the wall, of course, you know. Max is looking at me as if to say that's never happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't look at him like that. <laughs> um, y y good question. You know, I, there's nothing behind. Sorry, go ahead. There's there's nothing behind the question at all, other, sure. other than, what do you think? Where where does the music business go? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because if I'd been presented with that question whilst I was still at Brit School, uh, yeah, you'd say I want to be in a band like Black Midi. Yeah. Well, I I think I would have said I want to be a session drummer and play for oh, right. Adele. Well, okay. That was the sort yeah, of headspace yeah. I was in. Like, yeah, a lot of my um, like older drum pals, if you like, yeah, were yeah. sort of in the pop world and are still are. Yeah, and are doing like arena tours and that right, sort of thing. Right. Which I sort of, you know, I kind of thought, well, you know, that's what they do. So I guess I'm going to do that. Uh -huh. But I think deep down, I always knew my place wasn't to just do what's done before. Interesting. Yes, I always yes. knew that. There was something more than just like, you know, even when I talk about, oh, yeah, being a session drummer, it didn't fill me with excitement. Mm, yeah, yeah, so me I too. So I think me through too. that, I knew that there was there was something else that was there for me. And So, so, I mean, so, so if Adele comes along, 
<laughs> now answer this very carefully. If Adela comes along and says she wants you to do her next arena tour and it clashes with Black Nick. No, that's tricky. Okay, don't answer that question. Oh, don't, Bill, don't, you can't do Don't even, that. I'm sorry, it's unfair. Oh. Okay, cut the interview. Moving no, no. on swiftly. That's <laughs> uh, really hard. Um, but it, it's, it's nice in the jazz world because people are very hip to that, very flexible. Sure. You know, just because you've played in the horn section behind Adele doesn't mean that you've sold out or exactly. sold in or anything. You can go back straight back to any kind of jazz group. That's fantastic, you know. Yeah. Whereas as a kid, when I grew up, you could either like Jimi Hendrix or John Coltrane, but you sure. couldn't like them both. You weren't allowed to, you know, and I'd go, well, I like them both. Yeah, <laughs> wow. And, and, and you couldn't really... Uh, if you were a jazz guy, you couldn't sell out and play any kind of rock music. Yeah, they, they thought that was terrible. So it's much more grown up and much more professional. Mm, mm. And did you have much experience playing much jazz when you were younger? And jazz is what I grew up with, and as a kid, that's what I, st I started going ting 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 on a cymbal. Cool. Um, but then fell straight into as everybody would in 1968. You fall straight in with Hendrix and and all those guys, yeah. rather than the, at that time, not great British jazz scene, mm. you know. Um, so I just fell into that and one thing led to another, but I, all the time for about the first two years of yes, I thought we were in a jazz group. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but that's okay, that's I learned, I got yeah. there in the end. You wrong, wrong, and, wrong and strong, yeah. as they say. <laughs> <laughs> wrong and strong. Mm. That's really very, very interesting. And did you have a very musical upbringing? <clears throat> Not at all, really. I had to make it up as I was going along. I, I wasn't from a musical household, although my mum was a great dancer. My mum and dad loved dancing, ballroom dancing. Amazing. And they would roll up the, the rug, you know, at eight o'clock at night. And I'd be the DJ putting on Frank Sinatra and nice. Nat King Cole and stuff, you know. And so I grew up with a lot of great quality UK and American popular music. Mm. The great popular songbook, I, I know all that. And it's just lovely music, you know. Amazing. Um, the last lyrics I really learned by heart, but I didn't know I was learning them by heart, is Cole Porter and Frank Sinatra and those kind of nice. songwriters, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you you would just absorb that stuff like blotting paper. And then eventually Elvis Presley came sure. and Scotty Moore and Heartbreak Hotel and all that stuff. And you go, what is this? Mm -hmm. And eventually drums. Uh, so what did you think when you <clears throat> saw or heard Mitch Mitchell? I thought it was Elvin Jones play, <laughs> playing with, you know, he was, had that sloppy left-hand technique. Yeah, yeah. Playing with, playing with Hendrix. Um <laughs> But he was just a, he was just the drummer of the Riot Squad. He was a he was a studio guy, really, Mitch. And again, a crazy world of of nobody knowing really where this was going. And I liked him. Everybody thought the bass player was terrible, <laughs> <laughs> and he was. Who was that guy? I've forgotten. Uh, Noel Redding. It, Noel Redding, bless him. I love you, Noel. But <laughs> but, uh, but you were you were terrible, and that's all right. <laughs> and it's Damn. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, and then after after '68, you could make it up. You could do anything you wanted to. Mm. Absolutely, we thank the Beatles for that. You know, because sure. you know George Martin took Ringo Starr's drum kit, put cloths, mutes all over it, and tin cans on top of it, recorded it backwards through a compressor and stuff. And 
anything then went. Any drum sound sure. could be anything you wanted to, mm-hmm. you know. And so I was pretty pretty quickly hip to the idea that a drum could be anything you struck, any mm. kind of sound, really. And it seems as if you were one of the first drummers to embrace the idea of electric drums as well. Yeah, I did jump on it. Yeah. I did jump on it and, and had some good mileage, mm. but it was a sweat. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> it was a sweat because the equipment was rough mm. and it would always pack up, right. break down on you, which is brutal. Yeah. Especially if the only instrument you have is electronic drums. <laughs> <laughs> There's no backup. Uh, There's right? no, no backup. <laughs> and and that, that happened to me at a huge stadium gig in, 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 in New York, Madison Square Garden. Wow. With? And my, my entire electronic set packed up. At the beginning of a drum duet with Alan White, this other drummer, oh on the other gosh. side of the stage, he's it's a circular stage. He's about <laughs> he's about fifteen twenty meters away over the other side of the stage. It's a drum duet. No, nobody else on the stage at this point. Oh my god! Arc lights and spotlights from hell, and I'm left with some cymbals and a hi hat. <laughs> <laughs> you, your boy, I thought it was good stuff to play on cymbals oh and I had though. And he covered very well, so it was great. Wow. But no, don't don't go down the road of electronics only because <laughs> it's rough. I definitely won't often <laughs> saying that. But do you do anything with electronics? So we've um, sort of dabbled with, uh, you know, the Roland SPD. Yeah, SX. yes, yeah. I do. Yeah, so we've used that a little bit, or I've used that a little bit, um, just for some like some additional colours. Yeah, funny, sure. funny sure. sounds. Really, not yeah. even like musical things. Just yeah. like you know, like uh-huh. Tom and Jerry like samples. Yeah, or yeah, like that sort of thing. Well, I've um, spent so, quite a lot of time um, finding compositional aspects out of the electronic drums. Mm, mm. So you configure some kind of tintinabulation of, of percussive sounds of some sort electronic, electronically generated, yeah. which everybody else in the band loved. Yeah. And you'd go, they'd all stop drinking coffee and go, what's that? You know. And when the other guys stop drinking coffee and say, hey, I want to play with that. Play that thing again, Morgan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to play that. You know, then you know you've got them. Yeah. And when you have 18 or 20 compositions, eventually over a long time, that can exist only as a function of the fact that it's an electronic drum kit and you need those instruments and that configuration, otherwise the song doesn't exist, then you've really got it. And we had a few songs like that in King Crimson and they were great. Mm, And and all the agony, it made all the agony worth it. Yeah. You know, know, when you knew there was no one else on the planet doing that right now and that was the most original thing, you know, it's lovely. Yeah, 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 I bet. That's incredible question that's just come to mind that I could ask you that's quite a good one. Do you want to? Do you want I've to... also got yeah, one. I'm oh, yeah. oh, your question. <laughs> your question first. <laughs> right. So. Oh, no. Um, Make it easy. I got a really tough one for you. Okay. This is pretty easy. Actually, no, very tough considering the amounts of people that you played with. But who was your favorite group of musicians to play with or favorite project that you played in and why oh lots of lots of possible answers yeah. answers to that because everything's so different and yeah i thought that might be the answer but <clears throat> i had i do have a clear winner here mm. which is for me uh it was the 1980s king crimson we we had a, we had a band a quartet only for four years yeah or so three albums i think and maybe a couple of live and I thought it was great. It was just I was in my element there. Mm. And 
a very small group, just four guys. Um, and we, we had a plan, we had a scheme, we had a mission, we knew what we were doing. Pretty much everybody was doing different things on their instruments mm. all at the same time. So there was Simmons electronic drums, there was Roland guitar synthesizer, there was the wow. Chapman stick, which is a 10 string instrument that you tap and play at the same time. Tony Levin, right? Tony Levin. Mm. Uh, and these guys could really play. Mm. There were two Anglo guys and two Americans. The Anglo guys sat around intellectualizing and talking all day long. <laughs> That's me and Robert Fripp. <laughs> and the two Americans would just go off and play pool, you know, and have a drink and say, are you guys ready yet? Can we play yet? And then they'd sit down and play the heck out of it. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, very American way. And, and I just thought the balance of that was terrific mm. on many levels, texturally and politically and the way we got on together and the balance of the intellectual and the physical, the head, heart and the hips, all that just worked well for a little period of time. Mm. So that would be my favorite. And Adrian also loved his singing. Mm. He was one of those guys, you hardly needed to monitor the vocal. He just had, his voice had those kind of frequencies that would just, just cut. cut. Mm. And in the middle of almighty hell, you could hear his voice. It's just the, just the clarity of his, something in the voice, I think. Mm. And mm. probably singing consonants, pronouncing the words, you know. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that was a great band. That's really interesting. So that for me is in a way is what success looks like. Mm. You know, if I was to ask you, and this is my question. <laughs> what does success look like for you? What would you say? I mean, you might say right now. This is... I think success to me would be very similar to, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to blow your, your trumpet, but I genuinely do believe that, um, you know, even on the way here, I was saying to Max, like playing with or playing in, yes, King Crimson, Genesis, and of course, Earthworks and Bruford and everything else you did. That's that's the equivalent of playing in the Beatles, the Stones, <laughs> and the Who, or like oh, Miles Davis, Coltrane, and Monk. Like oh, that's well, it's very very incredible what what you did. And I think for me, one of my big aspirations is to you know say if I had a week ahead of me, one night Black Midi gig, next night a Dell tour, yeah, night after that. A West End show. Yeah. Night after that, my own trio. Wait, wait a minute, because the next night you're going to have to get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> because your kids haven't seen you. This is coming. Your kids haven't seen you and your wife is True. pissed. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, okay, well, well, we'll factor that in. Definitely. But I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I yes. want to play everything and anything that I can. Yes. Uh, yes. That's what success looks like to me. You have to make choices, though, eventually. Yeah. And something that you think you might really like, you say, well, I'm going to just have to take a rain check on that or, or do that another day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, if, if you're... But to be wanted, I think, is a lovely thing, too. Mm. You know, hey, let's get that guy who plays in Black Mini. Yeah. You know, we'll have him. Yeah, yeah. And Americans are very good at doing that, too. For sure. So if you start rising up in the States, the phone will start ringing. Mm. And people say, we need... You know, un unusual people will call you because you're the drummer in King Crimson mm. or the drummer in Black Midi. Sure, sure. And you go, yeah, this is a learning situation. I, I've never played with this guy. He wants it right now. It's a reading thing. You know, I don't know how your reading is, but not great. Not, 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 not great. Yeah. And uh, it's a quick reaction thing. I'm out of my depth here, you know, um, but let's do that. 
Yeah. And and I, I did that with several people and it's a lot of fun. Mm. A lot of fun. Mm. You learn so much, of course, when you're playing out of your depth. Exactly. You know. That's when you that's that's when you're pushed and that's when you grow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, every my my tip, my final tip yeah. to to Please. any musician is that at least once every six months you should for sure put yourself in a musical situation where you absolutely do not know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then you do something totally and you find something and that's that's the way you that's the way it goes mm, mm, mm. sometimes people ask me for that kind of tip you know and i think that's a good one yeah you can't that's always great. play you know something you're dead dead familiar with yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah what's your tip for young drummers coming up oh gosh there are people behind you you know even though you're so young there are probably great guys right now age 16 oh definitely there's loads of them oh no (laughs) no it's gonna be a 60 year gap between (laughs) yeah yeah well what would you say say to them other than go to the brit school other than go to the brit school Mm. i think open your ears i think Uh. because you know talking about the brit school that was the main thing that it did for me i hadn't heard of well i might have heard of king crimson and yes and genesis before that yeah but i don't think i was actually interested you know i think i was in a headspace where i listened to a particular type of music and i liked other things but i would never really immerse myself yeah in yeah other things and i know exactly what you mean i've taught people one-on-one and, and tried to find out what kind of music they like and the music they like is in with this within this terribly small with band yeah. <laughs> and it stretches from about you know 2013 to 2015 <laughs> <And> <laughs> something it. like that and that's it and you go is, is, is that the whole of music for you <laughs> you know amazing honestly and that's you know meeting, <laughs> meeting geordie and matt and cameron just opened my ears up so much yeah that's great like I think just really, it's so cliche, but cliches are there for a reason. I mm, think yeah. just try and listen to as much and as many different yeah, types yeah, of music yeah. as you can yeah. because it's only going to be more more um, weaponry for you to develop To a draw voice upon, yeah. And yeah, but become an individual yeah. because I think that's definitely something that maybe isn't as common as it used to be because yeah. you could argue there's mm. almost too many... Uh, resources where people can pull information from like YouTube or uh, just the internet and it now means that people are unable to pinpoint what they really want to do and want to chase and therefore you just end up sounding like loads of people but not yourself there you are young drummers you heard it from Morgan (laughs) right there that is the truth and he's sitting here in my room and he said that Uh... (laughs) I think we should wrap it up Morgan what do you say definitely do you think we've bored our listeners enough to death now I hope you guys are still awake, but... Wake up at the back. (laughs) Wake up. Thank you, Bill. That was an absolute pleasure. Great fun. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks so much to Bill Bruford and Morgan Simpson for chatting. If you like what you heard, follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting service and all available social channels. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme was composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.